Good morning. Good rainy morning, I guess, right? <laughs> I'm glad y'all swam to church this morning. Uh, it's good to have y'all this morning. Uh, we obviously have got, probably have a lot of stragglers coming in because of the rain, but uh, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Um, any prayer requests or announcements this morning before we get rolling? Okay, I see no hands. I know that uh, baby Stella is here for the first time today. I have not seen her yet, but Jackson came through as a proud big brother and said, my baby sister's here today. So uh, y'all be, I guess, on the lookout for her. I'm sure Doug will give us the look but don't touch speech. But uh, I know she's probably glad to get out of the house. Uh, Cassie is. But... Uh, Oh, yeah. Well, I heard that rumor. I had, yeah, she had, I, Stella went, made her first appearance watching her big brother playing ball. That's right. So, <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, I, I am thankful for you older women. Um, and I will definitely pray for that. But uh, I will, I'm prayerful today more than anything because it's Mother's Day. Y'all know that. And uh, all the women in our lives have made a huge impact. And all you mothers, I want to say thank you for what you do. Can't tell my wife enough how much I'm thankful for her. But uh, you know, without moms, it's very difficult in life. And uh, so we're thankful today as we celebrate mothers of all ages. Uh, but we're thankful for that. Anybody else? Any other comments or uh, prayer requests before I go to God? All right, let's pray together as we start off. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the day you've given us. And God, even though it is a rainy and dreary day outside, we are so thankful and blessed to be inside here together as your family, that we can gather together, even on days like this, to encourage one another and strengthen each other, that we may open up your word together as a family of believers and seek to see exactly what all is taught there so that we may be able to apply it to our lives. God, we are thankful for all the many blessings we have of being part of your family. And God, we're so thankful for our immediate families as well. And on this Mother's Day, we're thankful for our mothers. We're thankful for all that they do for the children and the ways that they lead by example and by training and being those caregivers at home. And we are so thankful for all that they are. God, we ask you to please be with our mothers. Help them to continue being that example and leading the children in the paths of righteousness as they grow older. And God, even as we have adult children, that you ask the mothers to continue to be that steadfast encouragement and example to them, even as they try to encourage their older children to do what they should do according to what you want in your word. God, we're so thankful for our moms. We ask that you please uh, watch over them, keep them, Help them to be that shining example that they always are. God, we're thankful for this church. We're thankful for our local congregation here at Dalreda, but we're thankful for your church as a whole around the world, that we are unified as one body of believers, that we will continue to be true and faithful to what you have taught and what you expect from us. God, we're thankful for Jesus who died for the church. That he died so that we would be able to be reunited with you and that our sins would be washed away and that we could 
have that restoration of the way things were way back when you first created man so that we would have that relationship with you. And God, we're thankful for his sacrifice and for that blood which covers our sins. It's through his name we pray. Amen. Y'all know we started the study on angels last week after concluding our study and discussion about Satan. And so as we move forward this week, I want to dive a little bit deeper, if I could, into some of the things that we see in the scriptures about uh, angels themselves. And I think what's interesting as you look at it, and you remember last week we kind of were talking about some of the characteristics of angels and, and kind of what we see in the scriptures about them, starting off first and foremost with the fact that um, really angels... Uh, even though we kind of give them that name, and it is a, a word that is transliterated from the, the Greek word angelos that is used, uh, really means messengers. So really every place where you see angels in the Bible, you can almost substitute in their messengers and, or messenger, and you would see somewhat of a different, I think, response uh, than what we see in the world around us. Because so many in the world around us, I believe, struggle with the spiritual aspect of these spiritual beings uh, being out there, being among us, being uh, active, uh, especially in the scriptures, we see their activeness. And uh, so it becomes this kind of an, an idea of, of um, angels being uh, elevated almost to a, a deity level, unfortunately. Uh, but in fact, they are not deity. Angels are heavenly messengers. They are spiritual beings that are sent with a specific purpose or, or a goal or duty by God. And you see that throughout the scriptures. And we kind of talked about some of those uh, things that they did and, and general speaking. But what I want to get into this week, if we could, is kind of talking about the question of are there rankings? Are there, is there a differentiation between what we see in the Bible about angels? And this is going to kind of dive into some other different um, heavenly beings and heavenly hosts, I believe, as we go through this. And then hopefully if we're able to get through to uh, the latter part of this lesson, be able to talk about some of the... Uh, the activity that angels uh, are involved in and help kind of lay the groundwork for, you know, do they do the same thing today? That kind of question that I think a lot of us would have, uh, a lot of us do have. And so as you study the scriptures, it's best to go back and look and see what they did, how they did it before. And then we can examine that question of, is there a change? Is there some reason why they may not be in the same capacity or role as they may have been once before? And of course, I would tell you as a little bit of foreshadowing, yes, there is some changes. Uh, primarily, the biggest change is going to be the message here is given to us. Uh, we have it inspired, whereas you never see that in the Old and New Testament as being the complete inspiration of God. So there had to be a revelation by God. And so there is going to be some changes, but how do they affect angels and the heavenly hosts and the way they operate and, and their duties? So what can I get into that, hopefully, as a little bit down the road? if we're able to get there today. So the first question that, that I want to kind of explore this morning is, were there rankings or are there rankings of the angels? And so really what you look at first in the scriptures is that, um, is there any kind of scriptural, uh, is there any support, that any guidance given in the scripture about any kind of rankings of the angels? And why is this important? Well, it's, it's really more of a mere curiosity than it is really of total importance, really. Does it matter if there's a hierarchy among the angels? Not really. Uh, you know, obviously God can set up any kind of hierarchy or order that he wants to do. And so, but what's interesting is you look at some of our denominational friends, uh, especially those maybe that are our Catholic friends, they, they place a, a large importance upon angels and the angelology that you see. By the way, angelology is actually a word. It's a study of angels. 
Um, but, uh, you know, th- that kind of a concept becomes kind of almost overemphasized, I think is the best way to put it, is that some of those around us who delve into these spiritual matters and these spiritual beings place almost too much emphasis on them, uh, creating almost uh, a, a super importance of angels or these heavenly beings uh, versus really what God wants it to be. And so as you kind of look at this question is, is, is there a ranking? Well, there's no direct scriptural authority or revelation from God that there is any kind of hierarchy among the angels, among the heavenly hosts. Uh, there would probably be the only, um, the, the, a lot of the discussion, if you were to, to Google this, or if you were doing any kind of in-depth uh, educational research about angels and the hierarchy that is contained, there's really two scriptures that people point to and look at with regard to potential hierarchy or elevations or some kind of a, a setup of a, of authority among the angels, and that's going to be Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1. So let's look at those real quickly. I don't want to spend too much on this. It's something that you can, I think, explore a little bit more on your own if you're curious and want to look at it some more yourself. But Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, let's go back. Who is he? I want a little context here since we're jumping in the middle of Colossians 1. He is, of course, Jesus. If you look, this passage, in fact, a lot of your scriptures and a lot of your Bibles may have a heading there called the incomparable Christ uh, there. But this is talking about Jesus here uh, being our Lord, our Savior, being the Son uh, who has um, you know, rescued us, given us redemption. Verse 14, we have redemption, forgiveness of sin. So verse 15, he is the firstborn, uh, or he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, again, if you remember last week, this is one scripture that I continue to go back and talk about God being actively involved in the creation of the spiritual realm, the spiritual world. And even though Genesis 1 primarily talks about the creation of the physical world, right? That's what it talks about. Those things which we can see, those things which we can touch, those things which we can taste, that, that is really specifically what Genesis chapter 1, they're talking about the six days of creation, really point out is the creation of the physical world. Well, the Bible reveals to us that God is also actively involved, and of course Jesus Christ as well, being there involved in the creation of the visible and the invisible in this world. So those things which we may not be able to see, those things which we may not be able to touch, uh, taste, uh, those things our five senses are really part of, uh, we may not be able to experience this. I guess you might be able to hear them. We'll get into that. And I don't want to chase a rabbit, but it's not a physical. So those invisible things, which we uh, would call more of the spiritual realm, God was just as involved in creating those things. And so what people look at in this scripture then, of course, that's that's the first point. I think that's validly pointed out here in the scripture, that God is, is responsible. That Jesus is responsible for the creation of both the visible and invisible. But with respect to the hierarchy of angels, they go on to say that there are four classes almost here that are enumerated as being spiritual beings here. Uh, Here, again, this is the argument. I don't know that there's really valid support for it, but that's what people hypothesize and argue. That with respect to the visible and invisible, the four things will be whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So the argument is this. And that Colossians chapter 1 here in verse 16, that there is laid out here four different choirs or choruses or classifications of angels. 
that are involved spiritually speaking. These four classifications being the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's what they point to and say. And they call them, you, you read in different uh, literature, different ways. I've heard them called the different choirs. Uh, I guess because they talk about angels singing and praising God and all that. So they kind of lump that in with that kind of a, a description. Obviously, it doesn't call that uh, choirs of angels here. But that's what, how it's described uh, by some theologians. And so you'll see these kind of classifications here listed as being kind of under the dominion of Christ. And then ultimately being classifications of angels, which would then, you know, you'd have groupings there. Again, I think it's a stretch. I mean, I think it's an interesting theological discussion. I think it is very interesting to say, okay, what is exactly are we talking about with regard to the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities? Now, I think you can easily say, well, he could be talking about visible things here. Because Paul's talking about him creating both physical, I mean, the, the visible and the invisible things. So I don't think you can automatically say that these four things only apply to the invisible. Uh, but, again, that's what is argued and that's what is said uh, by individuals talking about different hierarchies, classes, classifications, so to speak, of those that are angels. And, and again, interesting point here is the fact that the word angel or messenger is not even used in this passage of Scripture here. So we could be talking about something totally different than actually what we try to classify as being an angel. Um, so again, it's very intriguing. It's interesting. If you want to make yourself a note to do some more thorough, in-depth study of 1 Corinthians 1 and 15 and 16, I would encourage you to do it. I think what you will find is there's a lot of speculation from uninspired individuals of what they think that this means. And again, I think what we've got to, as Christians, understand and comprehend in our minds are we are restricted by that which has been revealed by God. And again, I'm going to always go back to the Deuteronomy 29.29 principle. There are things that are revealed to us, and there are some things that are not revealed to us. Those things which are necessary have been revealed for us and our knowledge, our edification, our encouragement, our, our application and wisdom. Uh, but there are a lot of things out there we just don't know. And by faith, we've got to grab a hold of the idea and concept that we've got to walk by faith, not by sight, which means we may not always comprehend those things. Coupled along with Colossians chapter 1, 15 and 16, flip over to Ephesians um, chapter 1. By the way, a side note of Colossians, I guess I should say this before we move on. The, the, the idea of angels is discussed in the book of Colossians, and, and a, lot of them would, a lot of people would argue that the Colossian hearsay, uh, which is, is discussed, if you look about in, in Colossae, they were dealing with a lot of issues uh, with regard to worship and some other kind of comprehension of the physical and the spiritual. So if you read Colossians, read it chapter to the chapter, you're going to see the beginning to end kind of revealing some of the issues that Paul's trying to confront. One of the things that Paul does confront in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18 is a concept that deals with angels. And so here, look at this. It says, verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. There is a warning by Paul here to the people at Colossae. To our brethren there in the church of Colossae, that there was a problem that they had with regard to worshiping angels. And again, I will tell you, I believe that there's a lot of activity that's done among our friends in different denominations that borderlines upon the idea of worshiping angels because they elevate them to the point of deity. There are some that actually pray to angels. 
I don't know how else you classify worship other than prayer to someone who you believe has superpower over anything. That's exactly what that is. So Paul himself here, of course, debunks the idea that we should worship or elevate angels to any type of hierarchy of authority, spiritual authority, over man. Uh, Here, the, the only spiritual authority over man is who? God and his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is over all. That's the only head we've got to deal with. Not angels, not any other kind of uh, spiritual authority. And Paul is dealing with that here. And that's why, by the way, people refer back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, and say that he's talking about angels there because in in chapter 2, verse 18, he specifically calls them out for worshiping of angels. And so the argument is, is in chapter 1, he's laying that foundation for that, that Christ is actually superior to all that. Brother Jim. It is, and a good example, Jim. You look at the book of Revelation and the example there of when John falls to his knees because he sees the, the angel of the Lord appearing and the angel pretty much tells him, get up. Uh, it says, don't worship me. Um, and so you see that very parallel to when Paul and Silas were traveling about, right? And they went into the town and they were doing miracles. All of a sudden people started bowing down to them saying, hey, you're you know, worshiping them when they came up on the scene. Maybe it was Paul and Barnabas, actually. Not Paul and Silas. Maybe in both. Um, but... You see, what their response is, is that I'm not worthy. I'm not the one you worship. It's not me. It's God. And angels react the exact same way. They are not the ones who want worship, except, of course, if you want to talk about Satan. (laughs) You know, look at Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4, right? The temptations of Christ. What is one of the things he tempts Christ to do? Bow down and worship him. Of course, Jesus debunks that, right? He, He contradicts exactly why. That is not something to be done. You shall worship the Lord your God, right? So you deal with that kind of a concept, and the Colossi brethren obviously were dealing with some of those problems. And obviously, if you see today, it is still a problem. Do a survey among our religious friends. If you look around the denominations around us, what you will see is there are many people who believe and elevate and teach and have it in their their different books, uh, their, their different treatises or their different uh, books of, of worship that they have come up with, that you worship angels and there's heavenly hosts, that they are not may not be necessarily equal to God, but they are worthy of praise. Well, no, they're not worthy of praise. There's nowhere in God's Word where it talks about angels being worthy of praise. Nowhere. And so Colossae had a problem with that. Again, I want to flip over to Ephesians chapter 1, the other parallel passage that's kind of used for the idea of this hierarchy, this differentiation among those of the angels is over in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. You'll see there, and uh, again, I don't want to get into too much of the context, but let's just go in verse 18. We'll start there. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, one, what is the hope of his calling? Number two, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? By the way, the one, two, and three I add. I like the, I write that in my Bible a lot. Just to give me the three-point sermon. you got to love that, right? Paul tells us right there. The third point, though, is the idea of what is the surpassing greatness of his power. And again, who is his? That's God. The surpassing power of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with those working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name is named, not only this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as a head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, here, people go back here to argue the fact his elevation back there into God by his right hand elevates him over this hierarchy of angels. Uh, again, I think that's not necessarily a problem because he is always supreme. <laughs> he is always elevated. He is always the one who is an authority. But there's nowhere here that we see with regard to any kind of a ranking system of angels that is really shown in the scriptures. Again, the, the focus of these scriptures, the one that I just read in Ephesians 1 and even going back to Colossians chapter 1 is what? The focus is on the supremacy, the glorification of Jesus, not angels. And so this hierarchy system, this as we think about, really is miss, missing the point altogether of these scriptures and what God is conveying and teaching to us here through the Apostle Paul, of course, uh, of, of the superiority of who God is and what he's done for us and the fact that Christ is the one place at the head. And really, whatever else is underneath him doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter in the overall scheme of things. It's us obeying, worshiping, honoring, glorifying, being there with respect to Christ and his authority over our life and being created over everything in heaven and earth that really matters. Hebrews chapter 1 emphasizes this point a little bit more. You're going to flip over there and read with me verses 3 and 4. It says, He is the radiance. Again, this is Jesus. This is the one who, uh, who, who his, his son, it says, verse 2, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And it says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as better, much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name as they. Now, if you want to talk any kind of hierarchy, any kind of superiority that there exists, would be that Christ is superior. Christ is the one superior. And that's all that matters. Now, there is a suggestion. There is obviously some proof and some uh, discussion about the idea that angels and humanity are somewhat on different levels. And so you can kind of see that with regard to the hierarchy uh, between angels and man. We talked about that, I believe, last week as you look at uh, in, in the book of Hebrews where uh, it talks about that um, the angels there in verses 6 through... Well, it's, it's on down in there. I don't have it marked right now. I'm going off notes. But uh, the idea that, that humanity is a little lower than the angels, that phrase being used. Uh, is is part of that. And a, a little lower than the angels, what does that really mean? Well, a little lower could mean, I guess, at that point in time, spiritual placement uh, with regard to humanity being a little lower than the angels because you think spiritually, again, we talked about this last week as we introed our lesson, the idea that there is no faith with regard to angels. Angels don't live by faith. They live by sight. Okay, They live by true knowledge, true wisdom with regard to who God is. True experience, we will put it that way, because they have experienced being at the feet of God. They have experienced the fact that God has commissioned them to send or take a message somewhere, that he has commissioned them to go and to, to take some type of an action maybe against another nation. The angels don't walk by faith. They walk by sight, which is the direct opposite of what we as humanity do, right? 
I have not experienced sitting at the throne of God. I hope to one day. That is my goal. I cannot wait for that experience. But I don't have that. I don't have that in my background. I don't have that as something that I can lean up on for my understanding and for my acknowledgement that there is a greater being, that there is someone that's bigger than me, that there's someone more powerful than me. I don't have that. I walk by faith, not by sight. It's the exact opposite of the angels because I have not seen those things. I have not experienced those things. I have faith that those things exist and that God does exist. I have faith that he sent his son Jesus to this world for me. I wasn't there. I didn't see him on the cross. I can only have faith about it. We walk by faith, not by sight. The angels, on the other hand, do not do that. There's a good explanation of why you could say they have a spiritual elevation considered uh, compared to us. Because they have been elevated to the point of their knowledge surpasses our knowledge. We talked about that last week. And the fact that they know things that we don't know. Now, we know some things by faith. They know things by their sight or their experience. Those things which they have actually uh, been a part of. And so those things can be seen as a differentiation between humanity and angels. Now, among angels themselves, though, again, going back to the rankings of the angels in amongst themselves as a group of spiritual beings, we don't really see much there with respect to a ranking uh, with regard to it. Uh, Hebrews 2.9. There, I didn't go off notes. It's right there. Hebrews 2.9. And we see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The idea of him subjecting himself to humanity made him a little lower than the angels, is what the way Hebrews uh, describes it, the Hebrew writer does. A uh, good explanation, I think. Now, the only ranking that you could say that there might exist among the angels that we see biblical support to would be archangels. And so as you look at the scriptures, you see that there are references to archangels in two locations. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, and let's read these specifically. I want to make sure that we have read these uh, and understand that these are the only two descriptions that we have in scriptures of possibly some type of an authoritativeness about uh, one angel maybe over others. So you see archangels mentioned 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and in Jude 9. So look, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heavens with a shout. Again, this is contextually here talking about the second coming of Christ. You can read the rest of chapter 4 if you want to to kind of discuss this. The Thessalonians had questions about Jesus coming back again, I think like we all do. And so thankfully Paul was able to reveal here some ideas about how that would occur uh, because verse 13 says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, being those that are dead, so you won't grieve as to those who rest have no hope. So he goes on to talk about the second coming. Verse, again, 16, it says, For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so you see here, archangels mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, and then flip over with me to Jude, verse 9. Jude, a little book. Very interesting book. For 25 verses. Y'all can read that very quickly probably. Um, but if you look at verse 9, and again, uh, Jude here is writing about um, things that are trying to reveal the, really going against hearsays, uh, false doctrine, those things. Verse 9 says here, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, I'm not getting into this can of worms about what is he actually talking about here. I encourage you, do your own study. It's a very interesting study to talk about, Jude verse 9, 
But for purposes of our study, what you see here is that specifically an inspired writer talks about an archangel. And that word archangel is mentioned here again specifically related to Michael, the archangel. And so you see a name as well as perhaps a description of his duty and something that uh, some actions that he took. The word archangel, which is a Greek word, uh, and I'm not even going to pronounce, uh, it's archangelos, or angelos, uh, try to pronounce it, I guess. But anyways, in these passages, it literally means a chief angel. So if you were to look at that, the, if you were to break apart that verse, or that word, obviously we already talked about angelos, and that means angel. It's a messenger. Uh, and then arca, or ark, comes from the word meaning chief, or kind of foremost, or someone uh, that is somewhat of elevated importance, I guess. And so um, here you see it mentioned, it is in a singularity form here, the archangel Michael. Uh, there is nowhere in the scriptures that there is a plurality ever mentioned, by the way. So I think that's interesting, is that there's no indication in scriptural indication that there are multiple archangels. Does that make sense? So we have scriptural proof. If you're wanting to talk about what do we have proof of in God's word, is that at least there was one archangel that's mentioned. His name is Michael, according to Jude 9. It's the only archangel named, mentioned, and there is no plurality ever mentioned. Again, if you get into the discussions about angels with some of our uh, spiritual-minded denominational friends, uh, whether it's the Catholic Church or any other denominations that, that you see, when they get into this discussion, they, they place an importance here about archangels being the plural form. And so what I just want to point out to you is there's no scriptural proof that there's more than one. If you want to say there is any kind of uh, hierarchy with regard to the angels and the duties they perform, the only proof that you would have is Jude verse 9 being a single archangel, their place, and his name being Michael. That's, that's all you got. That's all you got. We can speculate. We can talk about. We can have the rumors. But when it comes to scriptural proof, that's all we've got with regard to any kind of hierarchy or ranking among the angels. And again, as I mentioned, archangel, that word really means chief angel. So that you could argue that that does indicate some type of a hierarchy among this one angel able to maybe direct other angels. Maybe. We don't know that. He could be a chief for other reasons. He could just be a chief for purposes of communication. He communicates to the others and you know God doesn't communicate to all of them or something along those lines. We just don't know it hadn't been revealed to us. Jumping ahead of me in my notes, but yes, it's okay, Miss Dunn. No, you're right. Uh, she asked, are Gabriel and Michael the only ones named? And the answer is yes. We'll get to that in a second. The only angels that are actually named are mentioned. Um, there is in the Apocrypha books, Apocryphal books, there's one other one that's mentioned. Uh, but um, I'm not going to get on that road. But in, in the inspired word of God, yeah, there's two that are mentioned. Yes, Brother Melvin. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Excellent point. I don't know if y'all heard Melvin or not, but and I, didn't, I didn't want to dive too deep into Daniel 10, but you're right. When you look at Daniel chapter 10, and I think it is a good point, uh, Michael is mentioned there, although he's not mentioned as an archangel. He's mentioned, and if you look in your English text, as being a, a chief prince. And again, there's a whole dialogue there about um, the angel that had been sent to convey to Daniel had been held up, and he says that he had to reach out verse, uh, let's see, it's verse 13. Um, it says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. You can get in this dialogue, and again, I, I would encourage you, you want to do some angelology, look at Daniel chapter 10, because it's a very interesting dialogue there with regard to, uh, I think, an implication of spiritual warfare. I don't thoroughly understand it, and I don't think it's, it's completely... Um, understood to mean angels, but I think it's very hard not to apply that uh, because you think about what was going on there and there, there seems to be a spiritual confrontation that occurs in Daniel chapter 10 where this angel was being withheld from going and doing the, the purpose that God wanted him to do. And so that message that he was supposed to be conveying there uh, here with regard to this vision. Uh, and so you see ultimately uh, a dialogue there talking about the different princes and there's multiple princes. And then here you see Michael being talked about one of the chief princes. And so there's a plurality there possibly. If you applied it to angels, if you applied it to that kind of an application, uh, you would be able to say that there were, was an argument. There would be a scriptural basis to say maybe there are multiple um, archangels uh, out there. Maybe leading, you know, in my mind, I think about spiritual warfare. I think about, I, I, I parallel it to real warfare, right? where you've got the different legions of, of, of armies or soldiers that are on the battlefields, maybe multiple different places. Just in your mind, think World War II, where we had battles on all fronts in this world, right? And so in our minds, we can kind of see how you had different armies, and those armies might be led by different commanders. I see the application of how you could see how God would have maybe archangels, plural, to lead his spiritual battles in multiple locations. And you see it. Uh, there's just not 100% scriptural proof for it, I guess is what I want to get down to. it. I see the, the reasonableness of it. I see how it would definitely help. But other than Archangel mentioned in Jude 6 and then applying that to Daniel chapter 10, we don't have the scriptural support for it. Again, it becomes those things that may be unknown to us. But I, I appreciate you, Melvin, bringing that up. I really should have brought that up myself. But the idea of, of the application of Daniel 10 does indicate and give an argument. If you are trying to argue something circumstantially, the idea of arc means kind of a chief ruler or that kind of a context. And so using that to mean a chief prince would be very logical, uh, but we just don't have that firm and it's not quoted in the New Testament to give us that confirmation, those kind of things. So anyway, that, that, great point. Thank you for bringing that out. Uh, I encourage you guys to look at Daniel 10 because it's a really interesting story. Um, and uh, look at, kind of see how it all unfolds. But the, I think it gives an indication in Daniel 10 of some spiritual warfare going on uh, here in that vision and ultimately how it impacts Daniel, no doubt. All right. Any other comments before we move on real quickly to some of the names? Or maybe order creation. I mean, maybe he was the first one created. I don't know. I mean, we don't know exactly did he create all angels exactly simultaneously. You know, we're not told that. 
Uh, we don't know. But yeah, first, it could be the idea of maturity. It could be the idea of, of his, um, his creation order, even, uh, being that way. Good point. All right, so in the Bible, and they'll stole my thunder earlier, but that's okay. Uh, there are only two angels that are mentioned in Scripture specifically. There are only two. Uh, and it's amazing when you go out there and you look in the religious world, there's all kinds of different names that are assigned to, to angels. Uh, one point, by the way, I didn't mention specifically, I don't think, last week, but I will now because I think it's a, applicable here. Angels are never mentioned to be females, just so you know. I think it's interesting to think about that. They're always indicated as being males, uh, whether it is the pronoun he, when you look at it with regard to the way it's translated, or the names assigned, Gabriel and Michael are always traditionally male names, not female names. Um, you know, you've got uh, an indication there of that they're all being uh, male genders uh, in the scriptures. But again, I, I, don't th- I think you get into gender, you get into the idea of physical creation, and I'm not sure you, you have that uh, specifically with the, uh, the angels or with the spiritual beings, even though they can manifest themselves physically. And we talked about last week, y'all were able to pull out multiple instances where uh, angels indicated that they were able to touch physically someone else. So you had that manifestation physically uh, saying that they are uh, of any certain gender, I think is very interesting of an argument to consider because there really is no need for it, um, spiritually speaking. But we can get in a whole dialogue about the difference between physical bodies and spiritual bodies, which we'll get into our resurrection, uh, I think a good conversation there. But anyways, uh, y'all, can, y'all can chew on that yourselves. Uh, about the idea of spiritual bodies versus physical bodies. Uh, but look in the scriptures real quickly, and you'll see this. There are two angels mentioned by name. I want to point these out to you. Uh, we've already talked about Michael, of course, mentioned in Jude verse 9. He's also mentioned in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And then also, as we pointed out a moment ago, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2, 21, and in chapter 12, verse 1 in the book of Daniel, Michael is mentioned. Again, every one of these situations may not actually call him out to be an angel. And Daniel 10 is a good example of this, is because I'm not sure that the word angel is actually used there, but it is understood by the application and the context there. It seems to be that Michael is mentioned as being a spiritual being here, involved in the spiritual confrontation in Daniel chapter 10, and then ultimately again referred to, I think in chapter 12, he may be referred to as an angel there. Um, no, again, he's called the great prince. So verse 12, verse 1 in Daniel at that time, Michael, the great prince, stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress. Again, Michael's mentioned here, not specifically as an archangel or even as an angel, but most, as I said, in Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 12, would say that that's referring to probably Michael, the archangel, who's mentioned in Jude verse 9. The other angel specifically mentioned would be Gabriel. And we know Gabriel pretty well with regard to his roles in the um, revelation of God's message to people and humanity. And Gabriel is mentioned in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 16, and Daniel chapter 9 and verse 21. If you'll flip over there, you'll see Daniel specifically mentioned as being a part of that that historical importance uh, there concerning Daniel. And I cannot get my fingers to move. Daniel 8, 16. So then I heard a voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to while I was standing. And again, let's go back to verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. 
And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to me where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And so I think Daniel's mentioned there. Uh, A couple quick side notes about this. Um, Daniel did not seem to think that this was a kind or gentle appearance of a man, right? I mean, he, he appeared to be a man, it says there in verse 15. But then when you see when he came near, what happened to Daniel? What was his reaction? He was frightened. Now, why was he frightened? That's the question we have. Now, the, the scriptures don't necessarily reveal that to us, by the way. But if you look at other descriptions and responses to when angels have appeared to humanity, it's not as though that they are somewhat, I would call, angelic beings hovering and looking so graceful and, and, and flighty and, and all those kind of things you in your mind think of when you say the word angel. I mean, that has been, I think, improperly ingrained in our minds about what an angel is. And you look at this passage here, when this is, this again, this is Gabriel. Gabriel is specifically called an angel in other locations and other, other passages of Scripture. But Gabriel comes forward looking and having an appearance of a man. But Daniel, of all men, Daniel. And if you read the, you read the book of Daniel, you're going to see what Daniel's able to experience and undergo. He was not a man, I don't think, of much fear, by the way. He was frightened when Gabriel came near. I would argue is that the appearance of that man that, that looked like a man was not something of angelic you know, proportionality. It was someone who had this appearance that invoked a fear, a proper fear of God and the heavenly beings that existed. So more than likely, it was something that maybe his appearance itself made him be fearful. Maybe it was the fact that whenever he just emanated uh, this uh, essence of God, when he came forward, the, the authority is there. It's not some unique little baby with wings flying around and fluttering around. That's what we think in our minds about baby, you know, about little cupids or little angels. It's not that. It's not some angelic being with these beautiful, white, fluffy wings flying around as someone who doesn't really look like they could hurt you at all, you know? Gabriel is someone who appeared to be someone who had power and authority. And so the essence and, and the appearance there, I think, is, it speaks volumes. Chapter 9, verse 21 Again, Gabriel brings an answer. It's now why, verse 20, we'll start there. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God and behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction, talked with me, said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding at the beginning of your supplications and the command was issued and I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Of course, he goes through and gives him an answer there of what that vision means. The appearance again of Gabriel here evokes something much more, much greater than what we traditionally prescribe according to what an angel is. An angel, to me, the way that the world sees it, and a lot of the religious world sees it as just some just heavenly being that just kind of is there. Daniel here is completely engaged. And not only that, he conveys a message to Daniel. Uh, Gabriel does. He conveys that message to Daniel here from God, assuring him that God has listened to his supplications and his prayers and wants him to know the meaning 
of the vision. And so you see a much greater importance, a great, much greater duty here of Gabriel that we ultimately see in the scriptures. Then let's see what other, um, one more, that Gabriel's mentioned in Luke chapter 1. Most of y'all can probably expect and remember what John chapter, I mean Luke chapter 1 talks about, but it is the birth of John the Baptist. And so uh, there in John and Luke chapter 1, starting in verses 11 through 38, I'm not going to read all those scriptures, but you see, of course, we understand that the, the John the Baptist was foretold with the idea where um, Zacharias and Elizabeth uh, were told by God through an angel uh, that that birth was going to occur. We see in verse 11, the angel Lord appeared to him. And again, who's the him here? It's going to be Zacharias. So the angel appeared to Zacharias and told him that, that, they had, that God had heard the petition and that um, all those things had been heard by God, that Elizabeth was going to bear a son, told him who he's going to name him, that he's going to name him John. If you keep going through all of this, you're going to see that ultimately uh, that angel is uh, identified further uh, by um, when, when the angel appeared to Elizabeth. And I'm trying to remember exactly what verse it is because what I write down. Um, really need to stick to my notes, don't I? Um, thank you. Appreciate it. Nine, verse 19, the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. And so you see that being the third appearance uh, there of uh, Gabriel. Then let's flip back over, uh, flip over to uh, verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus' birth being foretold. Uh, here and you see uh, the idea that another angel appeared here and uh, it was again Gabriel verse 26 in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth there to Mary to give them the foreknowledge of who was going to be born of course that was going to be Jesus's birth we see the involvement specifically in scriptures of angels there's no doubt about it no doubt that angels have been involved and I believe they're still involved to some extent today but their involvement is specifically recognized here as being messengers. And there really indicates no hierarchy necessarily of these messengers, except if you want to get into possibly Daniel chapter 10 and the idea of an archangel. But every passage, though, really has to do with who are they listening to? Who is the messenger being sent from? And the answer always goes back, it's God. God is always the one foremost in charge of the spiritual realm. That's all that really matters. And those things which have, have come from that authority, have come from that position, being God, the Almighty Creator, uh, are things to be recognized and understood as the God's power, not any kind of hierarchy of angels. We'll continue to pick up here next week. Thank you.